0: How has the U.S. supported its most vulnerable children from the early days of orphanages to the current foster care system? We speak with an author and a researcher to find out if our child welfare system is doing everything it can to prepare our kids and teens to become responsible citizens. All of this on today's special episode of The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. Hello, everyone. I'm Ravi Gupta.
1: And I'm Ricky Schlott.
0: Well, Ricky, you know, we were researching for what we thought was going to be a segment on child welfare. And what we realized is that there's just so much going on here and that this is such a long saga of mistreatment of children in this country. So we wanted to devote at least one episode to this. And so, I started off with this interview of this woman named Dr. Christine Keneally. She's a award-winning journalist and author of several books. And the book that we focused on is called Ghosts of the Orphanage, A Story of Mysterious Deaths, a Conspiracy of Silence, and a Search for Justice. And she outlines a parade of horrors that happened in orphanages in this country for over 100 years, you know, up until basically the 70s. And she did some just old-school reporting to unearth Uh, Just a repeated pattern of practices where the Catholic Church and the system of orphanages basically swept under a rug a cycle of abuse and mistreatment of kids. And so we start with that just to talk about like what was the first system or the last system of taking care of our most vulnerable kids and who even were the kids that you know, attended orphanages. And basically she pierces through the pop culture kind of myths around orphanages and paints a wholly different picture of what these places are like. Uh, And then you did a different interview to talk about what's going on with today.
1: Yes, I spoke to Dr. Sarah Font. She's an associate professor of sociology and public policy at Penn State, and she researches um, foster care and child abuse and the modern system that we have in place today. And she's doing some much needed research in a very unattended field. Um, And she recently came out with a Wall Street Journal article that sparked a lot of conversation about how kids are doing in the foster care system today. Um, Some perhaps well meaning but misguided activists who um, want to kind of burn down the system as it is. But then also we discussed a lot of much needed reforms and the very delicate balance between children's interests and parents' interests and the desire to keep families together as much as possible, but also keep children safe. Um, And also just the, um, the impact that being a child protective services worker has had on her as well, because it's a really um, sad and harrowing kind of crevice of our society that's under attended to. And oftentimes these kids end up getting out of the foster care system and and head into adulthood um, severely behind as a result of the way that they've been treated. Hmm.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a thankless job, unfortunately, in Mm. our society. Well, okay, great. So listeners, you know, we're going to take you on a roller coaster ride right now on perhaps the most important issue we have as a society. So we hope you enjoy this episode. Let's jump right in with our interview of Dr. Keneally. Well, Christine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ravi. Thanks for having me. Well, Christine, like you, I grew up Catholic and I have you know quite a lot of experience with nuns. And I And I would say they were not the friendliest people, but I certainly didn't have the kind of experience that you described in this book. And what I find fascinating is the genesis of your of this reporting seems to be your own personal experience. Um, Let's start there. So you attended, I think it was a summer camp, right? And yeah, and you had you had an experience with a priest who wound up eventually going to prison. You mind just telling us that story.
2: No, sure. So, um, and and the reason I told the story is not just because it sort of was really part of my personal motivation, but because it's so common, right? So we, we know so much about Um, all these children of so many generations who have been abused by the priests. But there's this much wider circle of the kids who were forced to witness that, the kids who saw things happening but didn't know how to report it, the kids who understood there was something really weird going on but didn't know what to do with that information. So I was invited to um, a camp, an acting camp. It was a theatre camp with a friend of mine. I was super excited. It was something I'd always wanted to try. Didn't really know much about the setup. It was run by a priest was at his private property in this rural area about an hour outside of Melbourne, the town where I lived. And it was a weekend away. So um, convinced my parents to let me go. They weren't too keen on the idea, but finally got there, got to this camp. And it was this kind of weird free for all. There was just a bunch of kids ranging in all ages from sort of 13, 14 to 18, I didn't really understand the structure, I stuck close to my friend and that first night ended up sitting um, in front of this beautiful fire with uh, my friend, and uh, this really cute boy uh, who (laughs) I was very excited to meet, I went to an all-girls school, and also the priest, and the priest was a friend of the family of my girlfriend. and that night, you know, we just, we sort of, we were chatting away, this priest was talking about all sorts of, you know, holy, wonderful things about, you know, theatre and acting and people. And so the conversation took a turn at some point and he said something along the lines of um, how love is very beautiful and trust is incredibly important, and how wouldn't it be wonderful if the four of us, me, this boy, my friend, and the priest, went into his bedroom, which incidentally was the only room in this great big space in this building that actually had a door on it. Um, If we went into the bedroom and we showed that we understood what trust was by taking all our clothes off in front of each other. Um, So my dad was a really strict um, old school kind of Catholic guy. And he had instilled I guess, a lot of sort of clarity about what's right and also a lot of inhibition in me mm. at the same time. So in this weird moment where the world just suddenly tilted and I didn't quite understand what this priest was saying to me, I felt like my dad took over the operating system and I just sort of said no really loudly and really inappropriately, you know, Mm. for that setting. And the priest sort of became kind of, he was obviously very startled, he became kind of cold and he sort of looked away from me and stopped talking to me for the rest of the night. And I sort of quickly after that sort of ended up grabbing my sleeping bag just laid out on a couch, pulled the sleeping bag up over my head and stayed like that for the rest of the night Mm -hmm. um, with nowhere to process it. For the rest of the weekend, this guy basically ignored me. He was this very charismatic, cult-like figure, really. He had a lot of control over all the kids who were there. And I felt very much shut out. And I didn't understand. I was 14 years old. There'd been no education about abuse or the abuse of power or sexual abuse. Just felt very confused and weirded out and didn't know what to do with that experience. Um, Found out later, not too long after that, um, he went to jail a few years later for raping children of various ages and of both sexes who'd been to that same camp a few years before I'd been there. He ended up uh, reappearing in court many times He had assaulted and raped many children over many years. He got away with it, but he was finally jailed. He was one of Australia's first uh, worst priest offenders. Um, He died in jail, very much convinced of his own innocence and the fact that he'd done nothing wrong to the very end.
0: Wow. And I'm sorry you went through that. And I imagine some of your friends might have made different choices uh, than you did uh, even that night, right? Yeah. I could imagine that that stuck with you. And, you know, that's, it's not accidental that you wind up writing for BuzzFeed many years later, a very long and tragic story about an orphanage in Vermont called St. Joseph's. And this is a place from what I understand that represents a lot of what Orphanage is meant in the United States for a roughly 100-year-plus period of time. Uh, let's let's kind of just talk about what an orphanage is since it's a concept that I think has been depicted in popular culture, but it's kind of foreign to most people today because they no longer really exist in the way that you describe in your book in many ways. So what, right. what what's the genesis of the orphanage and what's sort of the heyday of the orphanage?
2: Yeah, and can I just say... It's not just because they no longer exist that people don't know about them. It's because the history of orphanages has been totally repressed shattered and scattered in the United States. More than 5 million Americans passed through orphanages in the 20th century. And that's a conservative estimate. And the impact of orphanages... Say that number one more time, just for our more audience. More than 5 million Americans passed through orphanages in the 20th century. Um, the impact of orphanages has not just been incredibly profound for people who've passed through them, but also for their families as well, for their children and even their children's children. There's a lot of the passing on of trauma that, you know, that we could talk about, Um So it was actually an enormous part of American history. And as you say, it it sort of crops up in popular culture. You've got your Shirley Temple films, (laughs) you know, just the most insane version, the most crazy, bizarro world version of what actually went inside these places. Little Orphan Annie, this heroic figure that appears again and again in history. And so these are these kind of weird remnants of this completely hidden part of American history. So the orphanages, many of the orphanages in the United States of which all states had quite a few, not just one, were founded in sort of the mid to late 1800s. It was a way to, you know, deal with children who'd lost parents in some way. Um, They grew and grew through to the 1930s, even though in 1925, the White House had um, put out a white paper suggesting that actually these weren't great ways to look after children, that there's a lot that was wrong with institutional care. Despite that really quite modern consciousness all the way back then, they peaked in the 1930s. But they continued on till at least the 1970s. And between that sort of the 30s and the 70s, you started to get foster care and other alternative child care systems taking over. But there's so little history written about orphanages. Much of it was written in the 1990s. And when I say much of it, actually very few books. There are very few books, very few studies. And what you see when you read through all these books is this sort of pat, repeated line. Oh, the orphanages peaked in the 1930s and then started to decline. And the suggestion is that they kind of went away then. They're actually still a really large part of uh, America, Through to the 1970s, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of kids were still passing through these places. Um, And so the institutions were often run by religious organisations. Certainly there was some state funded in all the states there were, um, but every major religion ran institutional care of some kind most of the religious orphanages were Catholic orphanages, but there were absolutely, there were Jewish orphanages, there were Anglican orphanages, many others. Um, they ranged in size, but often, you know, every state has them. And this is true across the world. This is in Australia, in the UK, in Ireland. Um big purpose-built buildings built in the late 1800s, often on a hill or by the river or in a field outside of town or the town as it was then. You know, the towns eventually grew to include them, but they're in sort of fairly isolated places, uh, purpose-built three- to four-storey buildings. Um, in the case of St Joseph's in Burlington, which is sort of really a good exemplar of all of these places, Um you know, maybe 20 to 30 nuns running their place and this rotating population of hundreds of children, certainly in decline again over that period, but still, you know, dozens of kids, hundreds of kids in some cases in the 60s in one institution and, you know, and a significant number still in the early 70s just before they shut down.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I think I went to a, a Catholic school as a kid when I was really young Uh, this place called Stella Niagara. And as you're talking, I'm Googling it. I'm like, I think this was an orphanage. Basically what you're describing was, I think it was an orphanage before it was a school. Something I'll have to look up, but you're making me think about it. And um, there was definitely a convent on, on the property. And so these are schools that the Catholic church in the 1800s, they established them in part because of some of the sort of destitution and poverty of immigrants arriving in the United States. It was largely for for kids who were not fully like orphaned, to use the term in the sense that both parents died, but a lot of cases the parents just didn't have the
2: resources to raise their kids, is that right? Was that like a common? um, That's absolutely right. It was rare for a child in an orphanage to be what was then thought of as a full orphan with both parents who had died. There was one kid um, in the sort of hundreds of stories, historic and contemporary people I interviewed, at St. Joseph's, I only came across one who was a full orphan. And, you know, horribly, ironically, that became a point of cruelty in the way the nuns treated her. It was somehow this shameful thing. She was teased and mocked for not having both of her parents. Um, Many kids had at least one parent. Often it was, you know, the illness of the parent. They just weren't social supports. If... Um, if one parent had died, if one parent was struggling with some kind of addiction, if one parent was in jail, or if the parents had just split and as two separate units, they literally couldn't afford their, you know, their children. And so,
0: the the sort of. Proximate story for you, or at least when you're at at BuzzFeed, the the orphanage that you decided to spend a ton of time, I mean, I think this was a many year effort to get to the bottom of what happened in this place is a place called St. Joseph's Orphanage in Vermont. And it basically lasted for over a century, from what I understand, until 1974, which is is an important date, because at that point, when you're doing this reporting, survivors of this orphanage are still alive. And so you're able to talk to them directly. And what did you discover- How did first of all, how did it even come to your plate? And what were some of the stories that you were hearing from these survivors?
2: Yeah. So, um, sadly, sort of having this conversation just as BuzzFeed News is shutting down. I know, it's right? terrible time. And, And I joined the BuzzFeed News investigation team just as it was starting. And so it was this time of like incredible ambition and also funding and so and led by this amazing man, Mark Shoupes. And Mark got behind this story all the way. And so he enabled me first just to look across the country and just to look as many different places as I could. And there, there are still there are still so many stories out there. Let me just say this. And and so, are you saying that
0: you knew before any of this that you wanted to do this story before you particularly knew which orphanage to focus on? Is that is that what you're saying? Yes, that's
2: right. So part of the challenge of the initial reporting was finding the right place, and um, I ended up settling on Buzz. uh, Sorry, on St. Joseph's in Burlington, Vermont, because what I was able to find was that. They had uh, a lot of survivors from St. Joseph's who participated in litigation in the 1990s. And um, by coming together, by creating a bunch of records, by giving depositions, in many cases, incredibly video depositions that I was ultimately able to find, um, they told that initial story. They told the initial version of their story. And so... Only once I had started to come across the records of that litigation was I able to establish that there was enough there that I was going to be able to use those records, not just to sort of evaluate what had been said in the 1990s versus what was being said to me, you know, 20 years later, but also to track individuals down who'd been there as well. So it was like coming across, you know, the archaeology of this mm-hmm. sort of old building or something. There was so much had disappeared, but there was so much there from which I was able to, you know, you
0: know, build the story out. Yeah, and it's helpful that they they testified under penalty of perjury, which always helps from a journalistic institution. Like you're, in many ways, like you have a huge head start from the perspective of vetting a lot of the stories.
2: Both in terms tell. of the stories of survivors and in terms of the testimony of the priests and the nuns who were also deposed because I was able to contrast their testimony about the orphanage with a bunch of documents that became available in 2006 in the wake of the Spotlight investigations in Burlington, and just see the enormous difference, the gap between what the diocese had released in the 1990s orphanage litigation in Discovery, priest's personnel files, for example, and then what later was released under order of a judge in 2006. Completely different Files in the 1990s that were one or two pages long, files in 2006 for the same priests that were thick and had huge amounts of information about their history of accused predatory behavior and their time spent in so-called rehab facilities for that behavior.
0: And I want to get to the Catholic Church and its culpability in all of this, but let's save that for a second. And I want to just talk about the experience of these kids. So, yeah. You write about this in harrowing detail, both in in the BuzzFeed article for people who want to get a sense of like a starting point of this, but also in your book. And and some of the things that you detail are at St. Joseph's, kids were forced to eat their own vomit. They were like, you know, they had damp bed sheets when they uh, urinated themselves in bed, like hung around their beds. There's kids who were hit with paddles, uh, sexually abused, potentially murdered. You know, you start your BuzzFeed article with a just absolutely terrifying anecdote of a kid being thrown through a window, potentially, allegedly. Yeah. Uh so these are obviously insane details. What what's your sense of like the climate in these like what what is it I these things are always hard to fathom evil? Like what's going on with these nuns and priests? I guess yeah. is the thing that I because I've interacted with so many nuns and priests as you have. And obviously there's like a runs the gamut of details, but there there does seem to be a abnormal amount of cruelty in the clergy in some of these institutions for a, a significant period of time. Like do you have an answer as to what the why the culture was what it was, to use like a very sanitized word, like culture? Like, yeah. What's going yeah. on with
2: these people? No, that's such an important question. And my answer is not exhaustive, but I, I have some, I think, really important reflections um, for anyone who thinks about sort of what was what, happening in this world. And... Um, you know, primarily, it's the same as the parish pre-sex abuse, right? This is an institution that is all-powerful, and its prime directive is to protect itself. So scandal was this huge word in the sort of the 1990s point, protecting the church from scandal. Um, so that that's truly the most important mission statement essentially, right? So whenever something comes up that might scandalize the church, all the mechanisms that start coming into place are about protecting the church, not protecting, for example, a child who's being abused. So then that's what was happening in the parishes, but inside an institution where there is almost no transparency to the outside world. And you have this incredibly strict hierarchical structure where the priest is the head of the institution. You've got 20 to 30 nuns who are below the priest. In the case of St. Joseph's, uh, according to the church's own records, I was able to show that from 1930 through the 1970s, at least six of the eight priests were credibly accused predators. So, so, So this is an organization that is just fully run by predators, right? That that small period where there were, I think, two other priests in there as chaplain who I wasn't able to find I thought, who I wasn't able to find documentation for, I wasn't able to prove something either way. That was only two to three years in the entire institution's history. Mm. So that's right, happening right at the top of this institution. You've got 20 to 30 nuns beneath the priest. Um, you know, you notice the cruelty of nuns in your school, right? And that, that's, I get get so much feedback. And, you know, let's obviously be clear. There are a lot of people who have fantastic nun stories. There are some amazing nuns out there, or there have been. And, you know, so that said there is this sort of palpable and obvious culture of just quite active cruelty. And the way I think about that, and it's in terms of these particular nuns at St. Joseph's, so I'm sure this is true of a lot of them, um, these nuns themselves often came from very impoverished families. They might have been the eighth child of 10. There was this culture of giving one of your kids to the church, right, as the nun or the priest, and <laughs> you know, it was seen as this proud thing, Um Some of these women uh, had left their schools at fourteen, at sixteen, at eighteen to enter these convents. The convents were very strict places, and sort of uh, there are always sort of two or three really critical um, principles, and you
0: know the alpha of the group essentially. Oh, absolutely!
2: The the hierarchy, the rigidity within the sort of the group of nuns was also profound. but we think of nuns as as um, holding these values of charity, of goodness, of all these things. But one of their most important and non-negotiable values was obedience. Obedience. I mean, this is what you see in soldiers, in units. You know, it's, it's about obedience. And just there's incredible punishment and social censure if, they, you know, just... It's not tolerated to not be obedient. So these young girls are being indoctrinated into this culture. Inside the institution itself, again, little transparency. There, there are no cultural influences coming into these places. So they began in sort of the mid to late 1800s. And the things that I came across suggest that It was a kind of a time warp bubble, you know?
0: They basically never left the
2: 1800s. They never, I think a lot of them never left the 1800s and the people who came in were indoctrinated into that. So there were occasional, I could find traces of one or two nun whistleblowers, nuns who had reported to the bishop, you know, father so-and-so is a bit strange with the boys in the changing rooms, that kind of thing. But mostly I think the nuns themselves were terrified. Um both of each other and of the priests and of the structure. They were completely in the same way the orphans were. They were completely disabled in their ability to function in the outside world. I don't think they saw other options for themselves, even if in their hearts they did want to defend kids. Um, And so a culture like that, you know, it's completely closed off and, you see, I certainly saw over the history of this one place, and I'm sure it's true for the most of them, that um, the culture feeds itself. So there would be visiting priests who would come in to the orphanage, who I later found their names on the credibly accused lists of priests in other states as well or other distant parishes. So the Predators Network, which absolutely existed inside, you know, the Catholic Church must have known that these were some of the best hunting grounds for them, right? So it's just an institution that just became sort of sicker and sicker and sicker over time and the ability for people to bust out, to change it. I do want to say I I heard some unbelievable, incredible stories from kids where... um, there was one man who was there in the 70s who had been bullied by this one particular nun and there was this one moment where this young nun sort of got between him and this nun who wanted to assault him and she punched the older nun. And this, you know, some extraordinarily terrible things happened to this man, but this was one of the sort of the experiences that sort of gave him life and sort of helped him keep going. That young nun, he never saw again after that incident, you know, unsurprisingly, but I think that's what happened too. Like a lot of people will tell stories about um, nuns who did something good or or just people, lay workers who did something good, but they always were disappeared. They always left after that. So it was a very efficient institution that kept people who were obedient who were willing to go along with the culture, whether through their own fear or because they were predators as well, um, and also getting rid of people who might change it.
0: But you found this abuse not just at this one place. You found it all across the world. Do you want to give us a sense of just the scope of what you've been able to discover so far?
2: Yeah, and that's why it was so important for me to to write this book and to take sort of some of the elements that were covered in the BuzzFeed News story, really build those out but place them in context of the whole world. So this is a global system. You know, I think of it as this sort of archipelago that stretches across the world and, and an invisible one as well. So those buildings that I was describing to you across the United States, they were here in Australia, they were across Europe, they were in, you know, they were in Ireland and England. England as well. And very much in terms of the Catholic part of this story, run by the same people, you know, the same nuns, the same people, the same kind of transferring of, you know, there actually wasn't as much of that transferring that happened with parish priests. People are familiar with that pattern where if, like, it got a little hot in one suburb or parish, the bishop would move a priest around and around and around. Of course, in these places, there was none of that oversight or sort of cultural awareness. So the, the people that were moved out of these places and into other places had done something really incredibly extraordinarily bad and, um, So I could see elements of that same pattern, but mostly, of course, they were all in the same places. So um, just extraordinary in terms of the children's experience. You know, one of the big challenges of this piece was, was just was evidence, right? A lot of these stories are historical stories. They're stories from people's childhood. They are extraordinary stories and extraordinary stories require, you know, as much verification and fact checking and validation as you possibly can. And, One of the ways I was able to really validate this entire universe and not just these individual stories was talking to people from all across the world as well. So it is the case that for a lot of these people, definitely some came forward in the 1990s, but many don't tell their stories. The stigma is so profound from simply having been in an orphanage, let alone the abuse that took place inside them. It, it is common for people not to talk about this for decades into their own life, I've spoken to individuals who only told their spouse when they were 60 or older that they'd been in a place like this. So it's very closely held, very hidden and invisible individually as well as historically. And um, I was able to speak to... Quite a few individuals who had either never told their story before, or had told only a few people before, you know, over the course of their very long life, and the details that corroborate each other across institutions and across countries are absolutely uncanny. I mean, you mentioned the this sort of incredibly cruel practice of humiliating children who had wet the bed through the night, and you know every kid wets the bed at some point This is an entirely normal human thing. And it is especially common uh, in situations where children are being traumatized. It's especially common in places where children do not feel comfortable and at home, such as in an institution. It's just simply to be expected. And, um, and these kids were treated as if they were somehow doing it on purpose. As you said, you know, wet sheets were draped around them. It was also a common practice to make them sort of march up and down the hallway or throughout the dorm. And the nuns would enjoin the other kids to either sing a particularly cruel song or to laugh at them. Um, so I've spoken to individuals who were part of the laughers and, you know, they, you um, remember feeling like they had to laugh or it could happen to them too you know like classic sort of um it's almost like
0: Saddam Hussein designed some of these things you know like if you've ever seen the footage of him making the people in the audience do the you know like conduct a firing squad of his enemies and the whole theory was you make people complicit is a way of control you know yeah
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. These tactics were the same. I mean, they're not just like, they literally were the same. So another thing that happened all across the world um, was that kids were often assigned numbers when they entered these institutions. But thereafter, they were addressed as a number, not as a name. The, The nun would say, 11, 10, 22, get over here. And, you know, I spoke to a man who didn't realize he had a name that was a word, not a number until he was 11 years old. It's just, it's the same. It's the same. It's like the same, the torture that's applied to political prisoners all over the world, the weird psychology that happens inside totalitarian regimes. It's the same stuff.
0: And so tell me a little bit about accountability or lack thereof. What do we know? Starting with St. Joseph's, because I know there was a lot that happened there, and Around the world. Because we know so much as a society now about the the fight against uh, the fight for justice as it relates to just priests writ large, you know, Mm. movies like Spotlight and the reporting on the Boston Globe. That's an ongoing struggle. What do we know about what's happened with Saint Joseph's and some of these other orphanages that you've investigated?
2: Right. So, in terms of accountability, sort of one of the most important um, moments in the history of accountability for orphanages is the 1990s. So, the 1990s is when a number of individuals across the world who'd spent time in these places um, came forward and tried to seek some kind of justice for themselves. It was sort of a strange period where I think people were a few decades out of their personal experience in the orphanage, and the culture around them had certainly also become more inviting. There was more consciousness that uh, there wasn't a lot, but there was more consciousness that abuse happened, that people might be affected by it, that something that happened to your childhood could stay with you for a long time. So um, outside of America, as people started to come forward and form into activist groups or support groups or get together in some way, those processes often led to government engagement. So for example, in Australia in the early 2000s, there was a federal government inquiry called Forgotten Australians. And, um, you know, it was a first pass at dealing with this history. The history is so massive and complex. It's, it's, it was just the first step. There needs to be so much more, but it performed this really important function of listening to people who'd been inside orphanages putting their stories in a report, putting them side by side so that, you know, reporters could later come along and actually start to evaluate them and chase down individuals and really fundamentally validate the reality of what happened inside these places. In America, and when people started to come forward in the 1990s to seek help, um, they were funneled towards this process of litigation, um, you know, for better or for worse, right? That that's just often how these things uh, roll out in the United States. So what that meant was they ended up, the people who sort of organized enough to actually engage, as they did in St. Joseph's uh, in Burlington, Vermont, they ended up in this combative process. And so inside the litigation process, you know, you had people on the one side who had experienced experiences and were often suffering from a kind of trauma that, you know, um, Bessel van der Kock, I don't know if you know Bessel van der Kock, he wrote The Body Keeps the Score. He was actually an expert witness in the St. Joseph's case. I spoke to him also many years later and he said to me the kind of trauma that these people experience that modern psychiatry even now cannot fully understand or account for, that he'd never met people affected in quite the way these people were affected. So that's That's the plaintiff group. And then on the other side, you have an incredibly wealthy and incredibly powerful institution that doesn't just have this sort of basic mission of self-protection, but that is literally, that has written the book, the global Mm -hmm. book on institutional self-protection that knows what to do and how to do it.
0: Continuing on the question of accountability as it relates to the church as somebody who—you came up in, in the Catholic Church, I came up in the Catholic Church, I imagine we both have kind of complicated relationships with it now. What do we make of this institution today? Because it still exists. I think if, if we've been describing this institution to somebody who didn't know all the great things we know about what the Catholic Church can do and, and what churches mean for our communities, it's it, it basically sounds like a criminal enterprise when we think about it, like— like what what should happen to the church today as an institution, and what can we do for the victims today that has not been done yet?
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, firstly, I would say, yes, I, I mean, I would ask people to explain to me how it's not a criminal enterprise. Um, the evidence is there, um, but in terms of today, so what happened in the wake of the BuzzFeed news article and that I describe in my book, actually really provides the beginnings of a great model, at least in terms of the, vi- the victim experience, right? So that's the first part of it. And then the abuser side is another part. So in the wake of the, the BuzzFeed News article, um, the State Attorney General of Vermont launched a criminal investigation um, because so many of the allegations had not been covered. That was that was a really important thing that happened um, Essentially, did what a lot of these other countries have done um, years before now, which is formally and officially seek out the victim's stories, provide them a conversation, essentially with the state, and gave an opportunity for them to put it all together in a report, formal documentation. That's not going to that record is not going away again, and um, to, to sort of officially say, we're sorry we should have listened to you a long time ago and we're listening now. So that that was really critical. I also want to note, though, that the Sisters of Providence, whose mother house is in Montreal in Canada and therefore were legally not obliged to engage in the process in any way or, like, were sort of not even culturally um, pressured, uh, did not participate in that investigation at all. The Diocese of uh, Burlington did, the Diocese of Vermont did, um, in ways that were, you know, somewhat helpful, and I would argue also not helpful at all. Um, so, in terms of accountability um, and this institution, one of the tools of accountability that have been developed since two thousand and two is that diocese published lists of credibly accused clergy um, in Burlington, Vermont. As a result of the BuzzFeed News article, the diocese put a group together. They spent a year going over records and they published a list of 40 credibly accused priests. So that's a great start. There are no women on that list at all. There are no nuns on that list. And yet documentation was gathered in the 1990s, which names many women who physically and sexually abused children. Um, I approached the diocese just a few months ago and asked them what they were going to do about updating the list. They didn't respond at all. So that's a huge part of the picture that has yet to be completed. And other priests have, you know, been named since then that have also not been added to the list. So I don't see any accountability in the sort of ongoing way to the victims at all. Um, The State Attorney General also launched a restorative justice process, which was a way of trying to provide the kind of trauma-informed engagement that victims require and that are so rarely offered in any way through sort of state or legal systems. And that was an incredibly important process and, and I think a real model for the rest of the country. So the survivors that came together in that process um saw like within a month or two of the BuzzFeed News article coming out, the statute of limitations for the sexual abuse of children in civil litigation was retroactively repealed in Vermont. And that is incredibly powerful. That is that is the most powerful way you can dissolve that um, that incredibly restrictive um, those limitations, which essentially work for predators all the time. Mm. Um, you know, we know it takes people years to come forward. We know in some cases it takes people decades to come forward. If you cut off the limit by which they can come forward with their complaints, you're really doing predators a favor. Even more radically, as a result of the work of the survivors of St. Joseph's who came together in that process, the statute of limitations for the physical abuse of children was also retroactively appealed. Now, my research tells me that's the first time that's happened in the United States. I may be corrected, but I'm pretty sure that's the case. That's extraordinary. That's absolutely amazing because physical abuse leaves scars for people often as terribly and as long-lasting as sexual abuse. And there's been no way for people to get justice in that domain. So that those are really important parts of the accountability piece. I'll note that, you know, the church was incredibly discouraging of this move, despite at the same time, you know, talking about their commitment to survivors and their willingness to sort of, you know, fix the sins of the past. So that's a really important part of accountability. Um, But there's so much more that needs to be done. And I would just sort of circle back and say that naming all credibly accused clergy, whether they are men or women, is a massive part of that.
0: Well, I think as we kind of close out, I would love to just talk about the end of these institutions, why that came about, and Just some thoughts on where we are now with the transition to a foster care system and the sort of relationship between the orphanage system and the foster care system that we have today and, you know, any thoughts from you as somebody who's been thinking about this about like what an ideal system would look like?
2: Yeah. Wow. I'll get to that last bit last because I, yes, I don't, I I don't know, but I, I, my main concern is that the orphanages were essentially disappeared. So I think it became really obvious and I sort of, I saw hints of this in documents, but it was very hard to get at, you know, the the real documents. Um, I think it became pretty clear that really bad things were happening inside these places. So I think states essentially made them go away as quietly as they could. And really there was no acknowledgement. And so, you know, uh, there's a huge problem in the orientation of the foster care system. So it was based, it was sort of physically essentially, built on the remains of the orphanage system. the The orphanage system was one in which extraordinary torture, the torture of children and abuses occurred. And there has been no acknowledgement. If those truths had come out in the 70s or even the 80s and the 90s, when there was a lot more strong physical evidence to back it up, then I think the outrage that would have just filled the country would have ensured much more um, conscious, aware uh, regulatory uh, structures and also human structures in the foster care system. Like just this basic principle that predators exist. Predators exist and they are always there and actually they quite often work together and they're really good at it. And this needs to be part of the bedrock of any childcare system. Um, there are so much, uh, there are so many more principles that would have come out of like a true acknowledgement of what America had really been doing to at least some of its children inside these hidden places. And then sort of more worryingly, um, you know, often the organizations that were placing kids inside orphanages and in the Catholic system, these would be Catholic social work agencies. Those agencies with all the exact same staff transitioned from working sort of interfacing with the orphanage system to interfacing with the foster care system and you know for many decades at the same time doing both of those things. So the people that were shutting kids down, ignoring them or even abusing them when these kids themselves tried to report what was happening to them, those individuals persisted inside these agencies, these sort of newly changed agencies for years and decades afterwards. So the culture that they enabled for a very long time is the same culture of the foster care system. I think, I, I don't know what the solution is, but the starting place has to be a full reckoning with the true history of American child care. We cannot hope to do the right thing by kids today if we don't really understand what we were doing to kids not that long ago kids who by the way are still alive today 60 years old 70 years old 80 years old they remember hmm.
0: well an incredibly sad but really important story and for our listeners go out there and get this book Ghosts of the Orphanage a story of mysterious deaths a conspiracy of silence and a search for justice Christine thank you so much for shedding light on this story and Let's hope that, you know, we continue to unearth all these injustices and, more importantly, do something about them, you know, get people the support they need who are still alive, dealing with this madness and, you know, reforming the system that exists today so that we can purge this horrendous culture of neglect and abuse of kids.
2: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ravi.
0: All right, Ricky. Well, what a depressing history. I mean, mm. I feel so bad for these kids.
1: Yeah. And it's it's clearly such an international issue. And actually one that was Really interesting to me personally because you talked about how a lot of these um, former orphans or people that were in orphanages don't even tell their spouses or their family and the stigma that surrounded it um, through this earlier period of history and you know it hits home for me because I didn't even know until we did a DNA test in my family that I'm the daughter of an adoptee who did spend the first only if the first few months of his life in an orphanage but you know that just goes to show yes my my dad is much older. So that was in the 30s, which is kind of the era that we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. So um, Lord knows what the the circumstances were where he was raised um, as an infant. But, you know, it was so stigmatized at that point in time that even I think there are people who've been through that system that may never even know it or realize it. Because back in the 30s, to have been an orphan, to have been uh, without parents, to have been forfeited was so taboo that his family never even told him and they went to the grave um, without him otherwise ever, I mean, he never would have known if I hadn't said, let's do 23 and me for fun, mm. which is crazy.
0: Yeah. What's crazy is the word orphan. It's like, it's, mm-hmm. it's even used as a verb today inaccurately. Like what, you know, basically what you pointed out was a lot of these people didn't lose both parents. They were just yeah. parents couldn't take care of them.
1: And, yeah. My dad was an adoptee. Both his parents were alive, but he was forfeited. Yeah. Or given up, I guess would be the correct term.
0: Well that was where we were and obviously she had a little bit to say about the foster care system and an interesting point about some of the pathologies of the way we treat we treated orphanages kind of mm-hmm. were responsible for some of the flaws in the foster care system as as it you know, came out of the orphanage system and essentially the same government workers, the same regulatory apparatus, the same neglect, the same attitude towards the most vulnerable kids kind of infused the foster care system. It's kind of a good setup for your interview, Ricky. You had a chance to talk to somebody about what's going on today.
1: Yeah. And I think that the interesting tension is, of course, you don't want to institutionalize kids in a way that they're forever in an orphanage, um, but you also don't want to see that same um I guess instinct kind of creep into the foster care system, which is meant to be impermanent and temporary. But unfortunately, a lot of kids end up in that system for much longer than was ever really intended. And so, um, without further ado, let's talk about what that looks like for them with Dr. Sarah Font. So, I see that your specialization is in child abuse and neglect, and child protection and foster care. And I'm curious, first, um, if you could just tell listeners what got you into this field and what what piqued your interest.
3: Sure. So um, so I have a background in social work, and I'm originally from Michigan. And in 2008, when I finished my master's in social work, the state was hiring, uh, they had to hire, I think, 500 new caseworkers um, because the system was overstretched. And so just by the nature of timing, I ended up working for Child Protective Services for a few years um, and that really sparked an interest in me and why we have a system that doesn't seem to consistently serve the interests of kids. Uh, so then I went and got my PhD and ended up doing research in this field.
1: And so one figure from your um, recent Wall Street Journal piece that really struck me is that there are 250,000 kids that end up moving through this system every year, which is just staggering as someone who admittedly didn't know much about this system. And so I'm curious. I'm sure a lot of listeners are in the same boat as I am. Um, So can you explain first how these kids typically end up in the system, the various pathways that, that bring them to foster care? Yeah.
3: So typically, most children enter foster care after a Child Protective Services investigation. And that investigation is the result of someone in the community. It could be, you know, a teacher or a police officer. It could also be a neighbor or a relative calling and saying, I'm worried that this kid is being harmed in their home. And so um if the investigation reveals that there's ongoing threat to the child in the home, sometimes that child will be placed in foster care. Uh, so there's about um, 7 million kids who are referred to the system each year. So the number of kids who end up entering foster care is relatively is small relative to that overall number.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, because most of the time the system decides that within the home the family can be safely maintained.
1: And so can you explain for kids who do end up getting put into the foster system um, how that typically works, what that process looks like, um, just kind of the general story? Sure. So
3: when a child first enters foster care, there's uh, a search for any relatives who might be able to take uh, to provide a home for that child. So uh, most often that's grandparents, but it could be cousins, aunts uncles, et cetera. And sometimes it can also be what's called fictive kin, so a person who has a pre-existing relationship with a child such as um, a teacher or um, a pastor or something like that. Uh, who might be willing to serve as their foster parent. Uh, when that's not possible, then the child is placed with either a non-relative foster family, um, so a couple who has be- become licensed, has gone through background checks, that sort of thing, uh, to become foster parents, or um, in special situations, they might be placed in congregate care, which is a group home or residential facility. And those are typically for children who um, have really high-level behavioral or mental health needs that preclude uh, placement in a family-like home.
1: And so um, in terms of what life looks like for these kids in these systems, um, I saw that the, the percentage of them that are bouncing between home to home is pretty staggering. And so like, what, what does that typically look like day-to-day for a kid who ends up in foster care?
3: So it's highly variable um, depending on the age and characteristics of the child, depending on the state that they live in. Um, and depending on sort of random factors, like um, what homes are uh, open to them, what caseworker they get, that sort of thing. In general, um, and particularly for children who enter foster care early in life, their risk of having a really unstable bouncing from home to home, that sort of thing, is pretty low. Um, for children entering care as teenagers, that's where the foster care system really doesn't provide the quality of care that it needs to.
1: And so can you tell me a little bit more about the specific challenges that teenagers in the system face? Yeah, so there's
3: a few challenges. So one is when children enter the system as teenagers, they've often experienced a really long period of um abuse, neglect, or both in their homes. Uh, They have difficulty adjusting to a foster care setting, and um, there are fewer families who say, we think we're able to take in teenagers. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, and the system, frankly, I don't think does a very good job at trying to find suitable families for teens, and so they're much more likely to end up in those group homes or residential facilities. Um, where the quality of those settings is highly variable as well. Some are, um, you know, they don't really provide adequate education and mental health services. Um, some are unsafe, that sort of thing. And those um, teenagers are also most likely to age out of care, meaning they reach 18 without having any legally or socially recognized family.
1: And so can you tell me a little bit about the challenges that they face when they age out of care? Like, is there an adequate system to kind of coast them into adulthood or are they just sort of on their own? What does that typically entail? So
3: most, yeah, most states have a range of supports, um, including things like extended foster care, meaning that they are um, provided housing, health care, other basic needs, until um, an older age, typically 21. Um, there's also a lot of colleges and universities have tuition waivers. Um, they're able to keep their health insurance until age 26, um, which is uh, Medicaid insurance. But it's often, it's not enough, frankly, and it's not enough because by the time they enter foster care, they're often pretty far behind academically. They have um, sometimes uh, significant unmet health care needs and that sort of thing. And those are not really typically resolved by the time they reach 18, so they're not always equipped to take advantage of those resources available.
1: Mm. And I'm just curious, like on a, a personal level, as someone who's seen this firsthand and worked in uh, child protective services, how has that impacted you to to watch this happen time and again to children? It's it's a struggle,
3: um, and I think the thing that is most um, most difficult is that. We know a lot from developmental science about what kids need to developmentally rebound uh, to be successful in life. And we don't consistently provide that to them, even though we know what that should look like.
1: And so what are the sort of top line things that you think are the, the most fundamental requirements for making sure that these kids do land on their feet in the end? So I think the first and most
3: important thing that, uh, the child protection system can do is adequately investigate cases of abuse and neglect so that we don't see um, a child coming into foster care after 10, 12 reports of abuse or neglect over several years. Um, because at, after so much harm is accumulated, it's much harder to try to help them rebound at that stage. The second thing, um, that I think is really important is that we have to realize that foster care is inherently temporary. Um, children aren't just sort of stuck in, uh, stuck in time while the system tries to figure out if their parents can address the, the risk that led to foster care or if they need to be put in a guardianship with a relative or other things. Um, so they can't just kind of let children sit. They have to treat the need for a permanent, stable family as an urgent need.
1: Mm. And so before I ask you a little bit more about other reforms that you'd like to see made, um, I'm curious if you can just give us a sense of what the outcomes long term look like for these kids. Are there differential rates of of incarceration, of uh, drug abuse or anything along those lines? Yeah. So relative
3: to the general population of children in the United States, children who have experienced foster care are Um, at higher risk of a range of negative outcomes, high school dropouts, teen parenthood, incarceration, and so forth. Um, However, recent research suggests that when you compare children who have experienced foster care to children who have been left in their familial homes after exposure to abuse or neglect, what we see is that uh, children who experience foster care tend to either... Uh, turn out similarly or slightly better, depending on the, the outcome. So there's some evidence that foster care is protective um, in cases of maltreatment, but not as much as it needs to be.
1: And so tell me a little bit about this tension that you discuss in the Wall Street Journal um, article recently between the like family preservation, which of course we want to keep kids with their family where they can safely do so, but also then just the welfare that sometimes is in tension with that. I saw that there has been a history of kind of the push and pull legally in terms of how to balance that. And I'm sure that's enormously delicate. So, so what's the history there? Right. So it's very difficult
3: when confronted with a case of suspected abuse or neglect to know for sure whether that can be safely addressed while keeping the child in the home or not. And so, so there's often been shifts back and forth where, um, well, you know, uh, Congress or state agencies will take stock and say, "We think we have too many kids in foster care. We need to really lean into family preservation and try to provide more in-home services." And then on the other side, there will be cases where children are left in the home and they suffer really significant injuries or sometimes die. And they say, okay, we're, we're going, we've gone too far and we need to really prioritize keeping children safe. Um, And so that pendulum swing has resulted in really inconsistent policy and practice over time. And we haven't really achieved the right balance because of the uncertainty inherent to assessing risk.
1: But I'm curious in terms of parental responsibility here, that there's a a simplistic narrative to say that, oh, this is the parent's fault and that's why this child ends up in this system. And I'm wondering if there's a more nuanced perspective that you can provide in terms of issues and challenges of poverty or other, other underlying challenges and systemic issues that parents might be experiencing that lead them to this point in time where their child is potentially going to be taken into the foster care system.
3: Parents who lose custody of their children have had, on, on the whole, extremely challenging lives. Um, often they have experienced abuse or neglect themselves. Some have been in foster care themselves. Um, poverty is fairly prevalent. Um, so, yes. So there's a lot of factors that leave us with significant sympathy for parents who face this situation. Um poverty is one of those factors. Um, but there's also tend to be unstable relationships. Um, the parent is sometimes the victim of domestic violence, has substance abuse or mental health challenges. Um, so there's a high level of complex needs in these scenarios. And so it's not so much a matter of who's fault it is, as it is what what needs to happen so that this child is safe and potentially has the chance to break that cycle.
1: And are there other social programs or any other reforms that you think like unrelated directly to the foster care system would help to decrease the number of kids that end up there in the end? Yes. So one of the
3: challenges, I think, with the child protection system is that it focuses primarily on what do we do to um, help parents address whatever issues led to foster care or led to child protection involvement. Uh, But it doesn't focus enough on helping children rebound developmentally so that when they reach the point where they're ready to become parents, that they're able to safely and appropriately parent. So we see too much intergenerational cycling Mm. of the same sort of issues. And so I think the best thing that we could do to prevent this scenario is um, better support adolescents who are um, sort of on the precipice of adulthood who um, are potentially gonna become parents in a few years and improve the likelihood that they're ready to do so safely.
1: And so another part of your article that I found interesting is um, recent research that you conducted that revealed that there's a huge amount of variance in the success that different states have in the foster care system. And so I'm curious like who the the best and the worst states might be and also what factors might play into that.
3: Yeah, so in that report, we really looked at um whether states were prioritizing timely permanency meaning that they use foster care as a temporary situation and not something that drags on forever and so what we found was that um there were a few states um such as Illinois where they really didn't see foster care as temporary when a children when a child came into foster care they were likely to sit there for several years And so they weren't being reunified, meaning returning home to their families of origin. They weren't being put in guardianship, and they weren't being adopted. They were just kind of stuck in a status of unpredictability. In other states, um, Utah, um, in particular, they really had um, they they moved children out of foster care pretty quickly. Uh, either to reunification or when reunification was not viable, they were very successful in finding adoptive families for children.
1: And so um, along those lines, I'd love to hear just generally some of the things that the current foster care system does do well or any um, reforms that we've made that have been positive, because, of course, there's a lot of negative to be told, but I'm sure in some ways it has improved over time.
3: Yeah, so I think um, there's been a few things that uh, have been important reforms over time. So one is the increase in supports that have been provided to youth who do age out of foster care. So the um, Affordable Care Act expanded Medicaid for youth aging out of care until age 26 to align with how children can stay on their parents' insurance um, otherwise. So that's that's been an important reform, I think, Um There's also been a pretty long-term decline in the use of institutional care. So the United States has a relatively low rate of institutional care for children relative to, for example, Europe. And so I think that's generally been successful, though now we're sort of getting to a point where – Because we've decreased the number of children coming into foster care, the children who do come into foster care tend to have a higher level of acute um, mental health and other needs. And we've decreased congregate care to the point that now we have some children who end up you know, sleeping in offices or other things because the placements aren't available. So while the decrease in congregate care on the whole has been good, it's started to reach a point where we maybe don't have enough. Mm. Um, the other thing, oh, sorry, oh, no, the last thing I'll say is um, the expansion of um, kinship care and the supports for relatives who are raising um, their uh, children has has been uh, pretty successful as well. So we have a pretty large share of children who are able to um, remain with family members with uh, state support.
1: And so one thing I'm curious about, um, on our show, we try to bridge political divides and um, be as nonpartisan as we can be. And I wonder, has this become politicized or weaponized politically at all? It seems like it should be an issue that is very much just something that everyone is interested in solving and bettering.
3: So it has become pretty political, I think, in the last five years or so with um, the emergence of a movement, um, uh, uh, this is a group of people who refer to themselves as abolitionists. And what they seek to do is essentially completely eliminate or dismantle the child protection system. They Their belief is that the system is sort of irredeemably racist and harmful to children. And they also tend to believe that um, what we would uh, call in the system child neglect is mostly about poverty and doesn't really need a, um, a coercive system response. So that that's um, and then there are another side of that who have pushed back on that and said you know the outcomes of neglect are as bad as the outcomes of abuse um, and we should we should treat that seriously and we require sometimes then a government response. Mm.
1: And so in your article, you also discussed how um, certain activists are maybe well-meaning, but potentially advocating for things that would make the foster care system even worse. And so I'd be curious to hear more about that and what sort of reforms you think are unwise, even if they're well-intentioned.
3: Right. So one of the things that's been pushed by advocates is the elimination of the Adoption and Safe Families Act. And the Adoption and Safe Families Act Um, the goal of that was to ensure that foster care is temporary and so that children aren't sitting for years and years in care. Um, And part of how it does that is it sets timelines. It says if a child's been in foster care uh, for at least 15 months, then the state needs to move for termination of parental rights, which allows for a child to be adopted, um, if reunification is not imminent. And... So some people say things like substance use or parents who are incarcerated that 15 months is really not long enough and that that's unfair to parents. When children are left in foster care long term because it's an unpredictable scenario, it's um, psychologically difficult to be in that status of limbo, They tend to develop more psychosocial and behavioral problems, and they're more likely to have unstable placements and um, move from home to home. And so there needs to be some sort of parameter on how long kids can stay in foster care, and that's what the Adoption of Safe Families Act tries to do. So I think that fully eliminating timelines and having a system like we see in Illinois, where children essentially just can't leave care, is unlikely to produce good outcomes for kids.
1: Mm. And just to tie a bow on our conversation here, I'd love to hear just briefly what your ideal model of foster care would look like in terms of the timeline and and the permanence or impermanence of putting a kid through that system. So, it's it's a little bit
3: difficult to say what the ideal model is, but I would say first that I think we would see a lot fewer kids who need. Um, institutional care who have really serious problems at the point they come into care if we assessed and intervened earlier. Um, So I think we wait too long to intervene. Um, The second thing that I'll say is when a child comes into foster care, there needs to be really immediate initiation of services for reunification. Um, A lot of times It just takes months for the services to even start, and that's really unfair to the parents. It's unfair to the kids, um, and it's just not helpful. So having a better service array um, so that we know soon uh, if reunification is going to be viable or not would go a long way towards um, reducing those long-term stays.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time and um, for such an Conversation sparking article in the journal. Um, I think it's a really underattended to issue, and um, I'm really glad that there are people like you who are digging in and, and doing the hard work on it. Thanks. Well, that was a very interesting interview, and I think um, obviously. It's great to see that there are some academics that are really spending enough time um, delving into this issue and bringing it to the Wall Street Journal, bringing it into a, a forum where there's actually sparking a public conversation about it. Because I think you know this is something that we kind of brush brush to the side and we don't think about the fact that there are a quarter of a million kids who get referred into this system and it, every single year. I mean, that's just a staggering number. Of course, not all of them end up actually going into foster care, but the fact that there is just a huge number of kids who who are our country is saying are not in a safe and adequate household where they are is is something that is just tragic and totally underattended
0: yeah it feels like the kind of thing that if we're ranking things that we want to get right as a country and as government this should be at the very top of the list like it involves you know mm-hmm. taking either taking a child away from their parents or the parents willingly giving up their children mm-hmm. like this this is like one of the most fraught questions that we face as a society. Like when, when is it appropriate to take a kid away from their parents? How do you even manage that interstitial period, which you guys spent so much time talking about in the interview? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic to wanting to accelerate things. Obviously you could think about the downsides, right? Like you accelerate things and parent, you know, at some point later on turns things around and makes things complicated. But at the same time, like these kids deserve some sense of predictability in their future. And mm. the system itself needs like a way to sort people because childhood is temporary, right? It's not like the kind of thing yeah. that lasts forever.
1: Yeah, and I mean, there's nothing more difficult, I can imagine, especially as a teenager than the constant impermanence of a system like the foster care system where, where a huge proportion of these kids are changing where they're living multiple times a year. And, you know, it's it's unfortunate to see that this is an issue that does sometimes get politicized, although I would say almost weirdly, it's almost feels like not enough at the same time. Like there's. Right. Uh, that's what I was thinking. Like there there are the the activist extremes, it sounds like. But then there's also the fact that, you know, it seems like we're, we're able to make a dialogue about just about every issue and make it into a, a hot button topic. But this is one that, you know, it almost feels like no one is talking about and.
0: Well, because you wonder why nobody talks about it because the parents who are most likely to have their kids taken away from them are not the people most likely to vote. So Mm -hmm. it's not like people are like, you know pining for the attention of parents who probably yeah. have some pathologies that make them, you know, less than upstanding civic citizens. You probably have other priorities if you're if your kid is being taken away from you, you're probably not great about keeping up who, you know, with who's running for dog catcher in your neighborhood. So it's not like these politicians are saying, "All right, you know, I want to make sure I do right by these parents." And at the same time, kids don't vote either. So you talk about the two mm-hmm. sides of this equation. There just aren't a lot of powerful people, which is why it's particularly important for you know the media and other people to shine a light on this, just because it's the right thing to do, not because there's anything to be gained politically for it.
1: Mm, absolutely. And I think you know one last thing that I'll I'll leave this this conversation on is this reminded me so much of um, the importance of teachers and the fact that. Oftentimes the kids that end up in these like having a flag raised who otherwise might be struggling in silence in their family situation, more often than not, it's a teacher who raises their hand and says, I'm worried about this kid and the system needs to make sure that they're adequately supported. And not only does it remind me how important that relationship that is it is, there is between a child and their teacher, but it also reminds me how tragic taking that away and and shutting down schools for as long as we did, like all the kids who may have continued to struggle in, in dangerous household situations as a result, because that in-person warning sign wasn't ever noticed or flagged by a teacher. It's just, um, I can only imagine how the pandemic exacerbated a lot of the challenges that these kids faced and potentially will continue to face as a result of it.
0: Well, on that cheery note, um, I think we'll wrap hmm. this one up. I think Sorry. there's probably a <laughs> lot more to talk about here. So uh, please send in voicemails. Ricky, you seem to have this committed to memory. I don't. So please send in voicemails if you have any insight or experience with the system. We are happy to and are likely to revisit this conversation. Uh, thank you for listening to Lost Debate. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time and place as usual. Have a great weekend.
1: The Lost Debate is the flagship show from The Branch. Our executive producer is Nick Perrone. Research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Video editing by Julia Waldman. Audio editing by Dean Methrell.